You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death construction In the fields of bodies burning As the war machine keeps turning and hatred to mankind, poisoning their brainwashed minds. Welcome to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen to the Anarchist World this week, Australia's sacred cow, Slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network, up and down, north and south, east and west, streaming live on 3cr.org.au. My name is Joseph Descartes, I'm hosting today's program. Look at the sun's out in your part of the world, go out into the sun, stop listening to the radio, why waste your life in a dull, airless room, but if you're in a car or at home, sick or, you know, at work... Listen to us. It is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. It's also podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. And I've been quite amazed about all the little emails we get from our podcast listeners, little people driving to work, listening to the Anarchist World this week, which is very nice. If you wonder what Anarchy is all about, an Anarchist Society is a voluntary, non-hierarchical society, which is based on the creation of political and social structures, which are based on direct democracy. The people involved in the decision make a decision, elect or appoint delegates to coordinate those decisions at local, regional, national levels. A little bit different to parliamentary democracy, where you give a parliamentary representative a signed blank cheque to make decisions for you for the next three to four years, and then you find that real power doesn't lie in Parliament, it lies in the boardrooms of national and transnational corporations. And a society is a society where wealth is held in common and used for the common good. So if you're some fire-breathing radical, stop listening, this is not for you. Anarchists are very conservative. We're into sustainability, you know. We're into equal decision-making power. We're into the distribution of resources. Very conservative concepts. Concepts that'll keep us going on planet Earth, but very conservative concepts. Really, the really radical people are out there supporting, you know, their local dictator or their local prime minister or their local president or their local religious leader. They're the really radical people. They're willing to give up their power and their authority to somebody else to make decisions for them. That's radicalism as far as I'm concerned. So if you're a conservative and you want to see radical social change, this is the program for you, the Anarchist World this week. In today's program, we'll be looking at Mabo Day. Yes, it's come round once again. And if we don't talk about it on the Anarchist World this week... Hardly anybody else will mention it. The creation of a police state. Do you feel that the screws have been tightened slowly? Well, keep listening and we'll tell you how these screws have been tightened. The 10% rule, community tithe. Philanthropy, yes, it's always <coughs> big when people don't pay taxes. We rely on philanthropy and we may have a few words to say about the carbon tax. 
This will be an ongoing issue over the next two or three years, but we may actually say a few words about the only mechanism that's available in a capitalist society to actually ensure the continued welfare of the human race is a tax. Think about it. Okay, let's start off with Marbo Day because June the 3rd is Marbo Day. And I hear you say Marbo Day, Marbo Day, June the 3rd. What's June the 3rd? You know, why is it important to me? It's of no consequence. I don't even know what it is. A National Reconciliation Week. Yes, we're in the midst of National Reconciliation Week. You wouldn't believe it, would you? You know, there's been lots of uh, stories about lots of things, but not much about National Reconciliation Week. National Reconciliation Week is a very political week as far as Indigenous Australians is concerned and non-Indigenous Australians. National Reconciliation Week is flanked by two important days in this country's history when Australians as a nation took steps to begin the journey towards reconciliation between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians. Now, how many people realise that? On the 27th of May, 1966... Australians voted overwhelmingly in a referendum supported by both sides of politics to give the Commonwealth Government the power to legislate on behalf of Indigenous Australians. It was that legislative ability that the Commonwealth had which led to land rights being given to Indigenous Australians in the Northern Territory by the Whitlam Government. Without that power, before before the 27th of May 1966, only the states had the right to make legislation regarding Indigenous Australians. So on the first day of... You've got Sorry Day, which is the 26th of May, but on the first day of Reconciliation Week, the 27th of May, is the referendum in 1966, which gave the Commonwealth Government the power to legislate on behalf of Indigenous Australians. Forget about the bullshit about the right to vote or the right to be counted in the census. They were byproducts of that historic decision, which transferred, which gave the Commonwealth the power to legislate on behalf of Indigenous Australians, on behalf of the Australian people. On the 3rd of June 1992, the High Court of Australia decided that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders had rights to land in law because of their prior occupation of this land. The Marbo High Court decision buried once and for all the myth that Australia was uninhabited, terra nullius, when Captain Cook claimed Australia on behalf of the British Crown in 1770. That's the legal fiction that the colonisation process was based on this country. There was no organised humanity on this continent. So therefore when Captain Cook claimed Australia on behalf of the British Crown, as far as they were concerned, it was uninhabited. I mean, the Indigenous Australians at that particular time were seen as no different to the kangaroos and the emus, which were they found on this continent. People with no rights. Uncle Eddie Marbo, a Torres Strait Islander from Moor, working as a gardener at James Cook University in Townsville, Townsville, had a decade earlier, this is in 1982, with Grandfather Rice and Father Passy initiated a legal challenge in the Queensland Supreme Court that directly challenged the illegal occupation of the continent by the British Crown. 
Now, you can imagine in 1982 when these three men who originated from Mur, an island of Torres Strait, actually went to this Queensland Supreme Court during the Bielke-Peterson era and claimed that this continent had been illegally occupied by the British Crown. People thought they were nuts. They'd be laughed out of court. Eddie Marbo never lived to see his long struggle vindicated. He died before the High Court handed down its decision that Indigenous Australians had rights to land in European law because of their prior occupation of this continent. His grave was moved from Townsville to Moor in the Torres Strait when it was vandalised by Australians who opposed the judgment. This is 1992. This is not 1882. Within a few years of the historic Marbo judgment that recognised Indigenous Australians' legal entitlement to land, legislation was passed in Federal Parliament that buried the initial judgment with bucket loads of extinguishment that made it almost impossible for Indigenous Australians to pursue their legitimate claims through the courts. And I understand that many Indigenous Australians are unhappy with the process, but the process is a direct consequence of legislation which was passed post the High Court judgment to bury the initial judgment that recognised that Indigenous Australians had rights to land in law because of their prior occupying, that buried it with bucket loads of extinguishment. And those of us who remember the debate in 1992-1993 remember the debate about how your backyard was going to be taken over by Indigenous Australians, by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. They're going to set up tents and have corroborates. That was the nature of the debate. It's ironic. Australians will once again be celebrating the British Crown's birthday with a public holiday next weekend. While Marbo Day, a far more significant day to 21st Australians, 21st century Australians, and the celebration of the colonisers' birthday will be ignored by most Australians. Most Australians don't even know about Reconciliation Week. Most Australians don't even know about the two historic days which flank Reconciliation Week. I mean, we'll all be taking our holiday, those of us who work on the, uh, the following weekend, to celebrate the British Crown's birthday. But when it comes to acknowledging an important point in this country's history as far as the relationship between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians, well, none of us will be doing that. Well, most people won't be doing that. The 3rd of June is arguably one of the most important days in the Australian calendar. I see it as important as Eureka Day, the 3rd of December, May Day, the 1st of May. To me, as an activist, the 3rd of June is a pivotal day in us trying to start, kick-start that reconciliation process between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians, which is based on the acknowledgement of the past, compensation and the establishment of a treaty. The 3rd of June marks the day non-Indigenous Australians, that's right, people like you and me, were given the opportunity to begin to reverse the damage caused by the colonisation process. We were handed an opportunity which our parliamentary representatives buried in bucket loads of extinguishment. 
it gives the Australians the opportunity to take the first step on the journey towards reconciliation between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians based on justice, not charity. Justice. Not about smoothing the pillow of a dying race, as the 19th century saw the fate of Indigenous Australians, but one based on justice that acknowledges Indigenous Australians, both Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, have survived and will continue to be part of the process, the political, social and community processes which occur in this country for decades, for centuries. With the 20th anniversary of the Mabo Judgment coming up in 2012, it is time serious consideration was given to replacing the public holiday Australians currently enjoy, which marks the birthday of the colonisers, the British Crown, with a public holiday on the 3rd of June, Mabo Day, the day reconciliation between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians based on justice was first put on the public agenda. And what does a public holiday mean? It means that people are forced to think about what the day has been set aside for, what it means for them, what it means for their children and their children's children. There is no public holiday anywhere in this country which actually, except in the Torres Strait, where the 3rd of June is gazetted a public holiday by the local council, which actually acknowledges this important starting point in our ability to renegotiate that fractured relationship which continues to exist between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians based on justice, not charity. Now, if you are in Melbourne, and I'm sure there may be, obviously, Mabo Day gatherings across the nation, and obviously, if you check out, you may find one, but if you are in Melbourne, there will be a Mabo Day gathering in Federation Square between 12 and 1 between 12 and 1. If you come to the corner of Flinders and Swanson Street near the church there, in Federation Square, between 12 and 1, you won't miss the huge banner. A uh, low-key celebration to mark in the city of 4 million people the fact that the 3rd of June continues to be an important day in the history of us as a people and the history of this nation. So if you are in Melbourne, 12 o'clock till 1, this Friday, the 3rd of June, join us. You've got nothing to lose and a lot to gain. Listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia the Community Radio Network. My name is Joseph Scar, I'm hosting today's program. I'd like a complimentary copy of this week's edition of the Anarchist Age Week Review, issue number 933. Uh, lead article is on Marbo Day, the need... Marble Day to be a public holiday. You can access it by going to anarchistmedia.org. Anarchistmedia.org. If you're not computer literate or don't want to have anything to do with computers, you can always write to us at Post Office Box 20 Parkville 3052. Post Office Box 20 Parkville 3052. And we'll send you out a copy of this week's edition of the Anarchist Age Weekly Review. Right, let's move on. Community Tithe. You know what a tithe is, T-I-T-H? It was in the good old days when the church, you know, got 10% of your income. The state got some, the feudal lord got some, the church got some. You know the little boy, bar, bar, black sheep? 
Wow. That was a little nursery rhyme about the distribution of wealth. One third to the church, one third to the manor, and one third to the uh, little boy who lived down the lane. Well, commun- I mean, tithes are something which many religious organisations continue to impose on their followers. It's a good way to uh, gain a bit of cash to keep the uh, organisation's head above water. Now, the big debate last week, and it's obviously disappeared this week, it's usually a debate one week and disappears the next week to reappear the, the year after, was about personal wealth. It's outrageous, the personal wealth accumulated by the country's richest 200 Australians, $163.7 billion dollars, is greater than the personal wealth held by the one million Australians on unemployment benefits and disability support pensions. Think about it. 200 people in this country, 200 citizens, have more personal wealth at their disposal than one million Australian citizens or residents. Hmm? Think about it. That's what happens when you live in an egalitarian community in Australia. 200 people have more personal wealth than 1 million. And to top off the little story, the growth in the personal wealth of the richest 200 Australians has over the past, in, over the past year increased by 23%. While pay-as-you-earn taxpayers have struggled to keep pace with rising prices during the same period. I mean, this highlights that something is very, very, very wrong with the Australian taxation system. The introduction of a 10% wealth tax, not very much, 10% wealth tax, a community type, on the wealth of the country's richest 200 citizens, would pay for the unemployment benefits and disability support pensions of over 100,000 Australians, freeing $16.3 billion to be used by government in other areas of community need. Think about it. 10% community wealth tax, $16.3 billion. Hey, presto, into the public arena, and only the richest 200 suffer. I can imagine Taliban Tony Abbott jumping on the bandwagon telling us he'll give up his last breath, but that's another story. The problem with this proposal is the richest 200 Australians have become so economically powerful as a result of the deregulation, privatisation and globalisation agenda pushed by the two main political parties over the past three decades. They are now dictating economic policy to the government of the day. Look at the debate surrounding the so-called carbon tax. Look who's dictating the nature of that debate. Look at the mining super profits tax. What happened to that? How it was watered down. I mean, these people are so rich, they dictate government policy. You may go to the trouble of giving a representative a signed blank check to make decisions for you for the next three to four years, but when it comes to, you know, fashioning, legislation which will go through Parliament. It's those people who own the means of production, distribution, communication who who determine what happens. 
as far as legislation is concerned. And the beauty about living in Australia in the 21st century is we've seen over and over again how this small group dominates political decision-making. If a community type was extended to corporations who hold assets of more than a billion dollars, the money raised would pay for the disability support pensions and unemployment benefits of the one million Australians who are currently relying on these social security benefits to survive. Instead of just looking at personal wealth, we should be looking at company wealth. And if a company has more than one billion dollars in assets, and there are a number of those companies in this country, what's wrong with them paying a 10% community tithe? I mean, they make their profits by exploiting us and our resources. So why shouldn't they pay a little bit back? Australians who are currently rely on... Whether such a tax is debated, let alone introduced, is a matter of political will. We are told, you know, it's a matter of political will. There is no political will currently to debate, let alone introduce a wealth tax. While governments act as cheerleaders for that small section of society that owns the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication, it is highly unlikely, highly unlikely, the idea of a community TIFE will gain any tractions unless Australians wake up from the commodity-induced slumber they're currently experiencing. More commodities, more debts, more melt enmeshed into the system. Taking into account that Her Majesty's loyal opposition leader, Mr Taliban Tony Abbott, has stated over and over again he would give up his last breath to ensure that some of the richest mining corporations of the planet don't pay an extra cent in tax. A community TIFE will only be introduced when Australians stop complaining and take extra parliamentary direct action to achieve what the governments they elect to represent them or are unwilling or unable to do. And that is the issue. That is the issue. If governments are not unwilling, are unwilling to act in your interest, you need to push them along to ensure they fear the people more than they fear the power of the corporate sector. And when push comes to shove, as we've seen in North Africa and the Middle East, the people united will never be defeated. And if we continue, continue to just let it wash over us, nothing will change. Let's move on to philanthropy, because I think the two issues are interlinked. I mean, isn't it strange how much attention has been paid in the fourth estate to philanthropy, you know? Big deal, big deal, philanthropy. It's become a big news item. It, it is no accident. It's no accident. The richer those who influence government policy become, the less taxes they pay and the greater role philanthropy plays in the community. Think about it. If you don't pay taxes, then you've got to go begging and beseeching with cap in hand to those who control the wealth in order to survive. The problem with people like the multimillionaire Jeff Chapman, who's on the richest 200 list, who is in the process of giving away his fortune, is they're few and far between. And they make the decisions about where their largesse is distributed. The point of having an equitable taxation system is to ensure 
that everyone, not just the deserving poor, receive support. This is quite interesting. The whole concept regarding welfare payments in the 19th century, there was this huge debate about the deserving poor and the undeserving poor, and the state and the ruling classes decide who was deserving poor and who was the undeserving poor. And we're getting back to the same concept, where people who, through Australian's taxation laws, can actually set up their own philanthropic trusts and receive significant tax deductions are now determining who they'll support and who they won't. Now, it's good to see that some people with assets are willing to share those assets. Well, 99.9% couldn't give a shit, and all they're interested in is, you know, extending their, their wealth. Now, I prefer a taxation system that taxes wealth, companies' profits, employees, and levies indirect taxes rather than have to rely on private philanthropy. What's the point of having a state if you have to rely on private philanthropy? Isn't, theoretically, the job of the state to look after its citizens? You and I know that the job of the state is to ensure that those who exercise power continue to exercise power, but we're told constantly that the job of the state is to maintain order and look after the welfare of its citizens. So if we take them at face value... You know, isn't it time the state actually did its job and we didn't have to rely on private philanthropy? It's all very well giving generous tax breaks to rich people who can afford to be generous. It's another thing forcing those rich people who, unlike Mr Chapman, would never dream of parting with their wealth to do the right thing by the communities that have made them so wealthy. Because we don't live in a vacuum. We don't live in a vacuum. There are finite resources, finite wealth. And if somebody has more than other, especially if the richest 200 have more than the poorest 1 million, well, then you realise that, uh, you know, somebody suffers and it's not the richest 200. Philanthropy shouldn't be used to fill welfare black holes. If there is a role for philanthropy, it can be found in providing those little extras the welfare system does not cover. Equitable taxation legislation not healthy tax breaks for personal philanthropy is the key to ensuring that all Australians, both deserving and undeserving, get access to the resources they need from the state to keep body and soul together. Rather than relying on the goodwill of the Mr Chapmans of the world, we should be relying on the state representing the interests of all its citizens not just, that, not just that small section whose economic, whose domination of the economy allows them to set the political agenda in this country. This is the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australian Community Radio Network. If you'd like a complimentary copy of this week's edition of the Anarchist Age Week Review, you can access that by going to anarchistmedia.org, anarchistmedia.org. You can write to us at Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. You can leave nice messages on 0439 395 489. 0439 395 489. You can email us at anarchistage at yahoo.com. Let's move on. I mean, let's have a little bit of a laugh. What a choice. What a choice. Do you know? We're in the midst of a very, very important debate. Now, forget about the carbon tax. Forget about global warming. We have a much more bigger bigger fish to fry.
the Gold Coast in Australia or Hambantota in Sri Lanka are the only two runners in the two-horse race to decide whether 2018 Commonwealth Games will be held. I am sure you are excited. We've got the Gold Coast in Australia and Hambantota in Sri Lanka, both vying to host the 2018 Commonwealth Games. I am sure you're enthralled. And this is, this is the topic of the day. Just in case, just in case you, like me, were wondering why Hambantota in Sri Lanka, well, boys and girls, it is the home village of President Mahinda Rajapaska. According to United Nations reports earlier this month, or last month, the father of 100,000 slaughtered civilians as the government he led pulled out all stops to get rid of the Tamil Tigers last year. So here we have President Mahinda Rajapaska, the president of Sri Lanka, the man who was responsible for ensuring the death of 100,000 civilians last year. I didn't make this up. Just look at the United Nations report. Promoting his home village, hometown in Sri Lanka, Ham Bantota has the place for the Commonwealth Games in 2018. Flushed with exercising absolute power after his military victory, his eldest son, 25-year-old local MP, Namal Rajapatska, has been given the task of leading the Ham Bantota bid. I assume that if he passes the test and snares the Commonwealth Games through for Sri Lanka, like Assad's Gaddafi and Kim Il-sung's progeny, he'll get to rule the roost in Sri Lanka when Daddy meets his maker. That's the way it goes. Daddy meets his maker. The progeny take over. Who needs royal families when you've got royal dictators? It seems even the opposition has jumped on the Commonwealth Games bandwagon. The the deputy opposition leader in Sri Lanka, Sajif Premadaska claims that after what this country went through with the tsunami and the end of the Inter-Sinai War, the Games are something that will give Sri Lanka impetus for development and growth. It will be something the whole country will be proud of. Good to see. Good to see. There you have it. A megalomaniac who wants his son to succeed him, supported by the opposition that knows what happens when you get in the way of the President and his family or Tinseltown on the Gold Coast. That's your choice. That's your big choice for the Commonwealth Games. That's your choice for the 2018 Commonwealth Games. Now, I know you're riveted by the Commonwealth Games as a sporting spectacle. You're riveted seeing those minnows battle those giants of the Commonwealth like Australia and that you're, you know, you'd give up your last breath to ensure that it occurs in Tinseltown. Now, not that I'm interested in the Commonwealth Games... You know, I'm not that interested. I'm sure you're interested, but I'm not that interested in the Commonwealth Games. I, for the life of me, can't, cannot even remember where they'll be held in 2014. That's how much interest I have. Here they are fighting over Tinseltown and Megalomaniac Paradise, fighting over where the Olympic Games, I mean, the Commonwealth Games will be in 2018, and I can't even remember where they'll be in 2014. When it becomes between, when it comes to choosing between the banal and evil, the, man, the banal in my book wins every time. 
So as far as I'm concerned, they should go to Tinseltown. On second thoughts, we don't have to make a choice. Let's, let's let the sun set on the Commonwealth Games. It set on the British Empire decades ago. So why should the long-suffering public ever be subjected to them again? So I think this is a good time to say bye-bye to the Commonwealth Games. Let the sun set on this anachronism and let's move on to something a little bit more interesting. Listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia on the uh, Community Radio Network, streaming live on 3cr.org.au. This program is now podcast. You can access the podcast by going to anarchistmedia.org. I'm a devastated person. I'm a devastated boy, man, whatever you like to call me. I'm devastated. You know, I'm devastated. You know why I'm devastated? Because my best mate... I'm going to make a public confession. This is one of these public confessions where you'll all go, Ooh, ah, Joe, we didn't know. What a black secret. I'm devastated, truly devastated. Me best mate, Taliban Tony Abbott, a man's man, has been stabbed in the back by that Chardonnay-swilling Malcolm Turnbull. I'm just devastated. Just when the Liberal Party was in a position to bury that redhead once and for all. All hell, all hell breaks loose in the party room. I mean, all they've got to do is walk into the next government and here they are fighting again about who's going to be the leader of the party. That Turnbull character, despite his loss of the leadership by just one vote a few years ago, still thinks he would make a better leader of the Liberal Party than me good mate Taliban Tony. A man's man who can fill his budgie smugglers with what a man needs to be a man. It seems that also ran. Joe Hockey has come out swinging against the dear leader, despite his public denials. Could you imagine that treachery? Turnbull Hockey Abbott. I'm just devastated. I am crying myself to sleep every night. I'm sure you are too. Talk about ungrateful. Joe Hockey should remember where his bread is buttered. If it wasn't for me mate, Taliban Tony Abbott, he'd still be languishing on the back bench. When it comes to a scrap and a little bit of below-the-belt massaging, Taliban Tony's always got the jump on Chardonnay-swilling Malcolm and poor old helpless Joe Hockey. I'm amazed these losers are asking me mate, Taliban Tony Abbott, to stand for something. Have they got bloody rocks in their heads? Don't they understand that as soon as you stand for something, bad things happen? Are they crazy? Any politician in this day and age who opens their mouth and horror of horrors stands up for something is asking for trouble. Who would be so stupid as to let the fourth estate have a field day at their expense by actually standing for something? No way would any politician with even one synapse in neuron stand up and be counted. Why would you? Why upset the puppet masters when you can keep your mouth shut and be elected on a mandate of not standing for anything? Me mate Taliban Tony knows that if he made the mistake of standing for something, Rupert wouldn't like him. If Rupert doesn't like you, as that redhead has found out, you're not going to get very far in politics in the land of Oz, are you? The lucky country... The egalitarian country, the country of the fair go. So 
So Taliban, uh, you keep your head down. Ignore these losers, Chardonnay swilling, Malcolm Turnbull and that other character, Joe Hockey. You're my man. You can fill your budgie smugglers. You know what a man's man is. You'll be the next Prime Minister of Australia. You keep your head up. Don't be distracted. Don't make the mistake of actually standing for something or actually elucidating any policies. If you do, mate, you're going to lose. This is the Angus World this week, broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Community Radio Network. Yes, so there's a lot of interesting things happening. Now, I just want to talk about the carbon tax just briefly because we'll do this for the next two years to the next federal election, I assume. But uh, it's interesting that um, as the uh, information comes in that uh, global warming is real and that it's obviously human-induced, we still have significant segments of the Australian population who, one, think it's a hoax, two who think we don't need to do anything about it. And three, who think that all we need is to introduce a tax and law and the debate will all be over. Now, the problem about living in a capitalist society is they have two mechanisms of actually changing political and economic direction. Taxation, that's an economic cudgel, or prison. It's that simple. There's nothing else. There's either taxation or prison. These are the two things that you can actually use to change policy. So obviously the introduction of a carbon tax is something that you would introduce in a capitalist society in an attempt to force industries to take on new methods of producing renewable energy where you don't have carbon emissions. And this is the only, it is the only mechanism that is available in a capitalist society, a society based on the creation of ever-increasing profits irrespective of the human, social and environmental costs. And obviously, you and me become collateral damage. We become collateral damage. Capitalism has brought us to the brink of this disaster. Capitalism will not provide the solution, carbon tax or no carbon tax. And the key to the change is not the introduction of just a carbon tax, but radical change in terms of creating an economy based on the satisfaction of real, not not manufactured human needs, which is not based on creating profits irrespective of the human, social and environmental costs. So if you think this faux debate about a carbon tax, you know, is some debate, think again, because the changes that need to be made are much, much, much more radical than anybody can contemplate at the minute. And the key to this debate about a carbon tax is one mechanism by which to force a capitalist society, you know, to accept it. But the key about the debate in Australia is it's how short-sighted. Well, you've got conservatives in Germany shutting down nuclear power plants in the next 10 years because they see this is not the way to actually create a renewable energy sources. You've got conservative governments in Britain actually making some effort to change the amount of greenhouse emissions that have been produced, and even the Chinese government making, being forced to make decisions to decrease greenhouse emissions. We have, in Australia, where we have 0.3% of the world's population, you know, 0.3% on the, but we produce 1.5% of the world's emissions. 
And it's all very well for people to say we shouldn't take any steps because we don't need to take steps. But the reality is that we put now 10 times more carbon emissions here in Australia than our neighbours in Indonesia per head of population. End of story. So if we don't take any initiatives, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a carbon tax, but if we don't actually take initiatives to deal with this issue, why would anybody else take any initiatives? And that is the thinking. But the thing is, it's not just a matter of a carbon tax. It's actually a matter of a radical change in the economic structures we have in breaking down this nexus between economy and profits. They're not interlinked. People think they're interlinked. They think you can't have an economy without a profit. You don't actually need to create a profit to have a sustainable economy. And the beauty about living in anarchist society where wealth is held in Kelman, you've got the potential to, to move quickly to deal with issues because people's livelihoods is not dependent on a wage system. So in a capitalist society, we've got everybody fighting against the introduction of a piddling carbon tax because it'll affect their livelihoods and affect the way they live. So there's not much room to manoeuvre. No room to manoeuvre in a capitalist society because the collateral damage is basically borne by the powerlessness. And irrespective of the mechanisms that are established for compensation, we will find that the losers will be people like you and me. It won't be the corporate sector because they will use that compensation to change production of renewable energies. And the thing is, what they will look at is continuing centralised energy sources, producing energy from a centralised area which gives them the power to control that. Well, in anarchist society, we're looking at decentralised energy sources. Now, if the state of Germany, one of the most highly industrialised states on this planet, with almost 90 million people in the state of Germany, can actually phase out nuclear power plants by a conservative government, can phase out nuclear power plants in the next 11 years, and actually is now currently getting its energy sources from 20% of renewable energy. And we're talking about Germany in the Northern Hemisphere. Why can't people in little old Australia be involved or governments actually be involved in actions to set up renewable energy sources which are outside the control of the private sector, which allow individuals to contribute to the grid instead of allowing the private sector to continue to dominate energy production. And that is the key. Does the state use its resources to give each individual household the ability to produce energy, which is then goes into a common grid, or does the state continue to support businesses which will continue to pollute, will pay their carbon tax, pass on the cost to you and me, and will continue to pollute and increase greenhouse emissions? Listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live. It is streaming live. It is broadcast the Community Radio Network, and if you've missed most of it, or if you can't hear it, well, you won't be hearing this message, will you? You can always access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. 3cr.org.au. Access the podcast, use the podcast, and, uh, you know, move on. Now, next week, 
I'll be talking about a particularly important court case that will be held in Melbourne on the 16th of June. So uh, if you've got the 16th of June 3, we'd like you to uh, make your way to the Magistrates Court, but I'll talk to you about that next week because it is an important case. Now, look, you may find this a little bit pedantic. I usually try to make things national, but sometimes I look at uh, regional variations. Now, in Victoria, yes, Victoria, the jewel in somebody's crown, the Victorian Ombudsman has slammed WorkSafe payout agencies. Now, I don't know if most people know, there's been a lot of trouble, a lot of trouble with work cover in Victoria, and I assume this trouble is in every other state with the work cover agencies. And the problem, to a large degree, occurs because it's outsourced to the private sector. It is outsourced to the private sector. And the Victorian Ombudsman has found out that, uh, and he released a report uh, about three or four days ago, has found out that... uh, the 50,000 Victorian workers who've got active claims for workplace injuries have been pushed about and the people who provide services to these workers have been pushed about and been pushed about because their accounts aren't being paid and their accounts aren't being paid because they've been, you know, uh, these private insurance agencies which actually run work cover on behalf of the government have actually been misplacing accounts on purpose They've actually uh, done all this so they can get incentive bonuses. Hard to believe, really. Now, the government in Victoria, the Labor government in Victoria before the Bellier government was elected last year, knew there was something very wrong with these private uh, work cover companies, these private insurance companies, which actually look after, in inverted commas, the needs of workers who are injured on the job. And it transferred the more serious injured patients or the more seriously injured work cover people to the Transport Accident Commission, which is actually owned by the state government because they were finding it was almost impossible to ensure that workers were receiving the services they required. But the others, 50,000 who find having got lifelong severe injuries continued to be pushed around they continued to be pushed around by private insurance company you know you know when you look at the percentage of cases where things go right you'll find that they don't go right and the reason they're not going right is the fact that private corporations are in the business of making a profit. So when governments turn over their responsibilities to the workforce, to private corporations, this is what we see. We're constantly told that public services are inefficient. But the reality is a little bit different because one dollar in every three which goes to a private corporation to actually run a service, whether it's a service for the homeless, whether it's work cover or work safe, one in three goes in administration costs. Then you've got to make a profit. So less than one in two dollars actually goes to the people who need it. No wonder the Victorian government last year transferred the more serious workplace injured 
workers for the Transport Accident Commission to ensure that at least, despite all the paperwork you've got to go through the Transport Accident Commission, that at least their basic needs would be met in a much more efficient way for the taxpayer. That's what it's about, efficiency for the taxpayer. So next time somebody tells you, somebody tells you the private sector does it better, just refer them to the Victorian's Ombudsman's report on WorkSafe payout agencies. You'd be shocked. You'd be shocked. I mean... There's just no accountability. There is no accountabilities. I mean, in one case, the Victorian Ombudsman found that the insurance company, that CGU, which had the contract, had hidden 10,000 overdue accounts in a locked cupboard. Could you imagine that? 10,000 overdue accounts. They're overdue. Put them in a locked cupboard. You see what happens when your accounts are overdue. Before you know it, they're knocking on your bloody door, you know, trying to take your goods to pay those overdue accounts. So uh, it's a serious issue. And if you think the private sector does it better, have a look at the Victorian Ombudsman report and uh, just remember that in Victoria, the more seriously injured workers have been transferred to the Transport and Accident Commission, the state-owned agency which looks after people who are injured in uh, road traffic accidents. I'm not saying the Transport Accident Commission, it's got its own issues, but compared to the... uh, privately run uh, work safe payout agencies you know compared to them it's doing a reasonable job so uh, that's a good thing next time you get an account lock it away in the cupboard forget about it nothing will happen you know you'll be like the work safe uh, private corporations nothing will happen to you you'll get a slap on the wrist and maybe a little fine but uh, you'll never be asked to pay those accounts will you Great way to pay your accounts, lock them in a cupboard and forget about them. This is the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia and the Community Radio Network. My name is Joseph Scan. I'm hosting today's program. If you'd like a complimentary copy of this week's edition of the Anarchist Stage Week Review, issue number 933. Yes, I will be stopping in 1,000 if I'm lucky enough to get to 1,000. 930, go to anarchistmedia.org, anarchistmedia.org, police state. Now, have you got that feeling, that vague feeling that things are just not right? They're not the same as they used to be? Not because you're getting older. You just get this vague feeling, you know? You think people are watching you? Nah, nah. I'd just like to look at the a police state. Now, a lot of people think a police state is when the secret police or the police are used to keep a government in power. Well, that's part of it. But to me, the definition of a police state is when you remove the umpire from the interaction between the state and the individual. And that umpire is the judiciary, the court system. Now, let's look at what's happening in Victoria because it is very rapidly, since the election of the Bailey government, becoming a police state because it seems that the uh, solution to every human and social problem is longer prison sentences, mandatory sentences, more prisoners... I mean, let's let's see if we can beat the United States and have more than 1% of the Victorian population in prison by the end of the Bayou government's term in office. That'll be 50,000, double the current or triple the current, quadruple the current prison population. I'm sure we could do it if we worked hard enough. But on a more serious note, the new laws that will give Victoria Police the power to issue on-the-spot fines for language deemed to be indecent, offensive, disorderly or threatening is another of those laws that have been introduced in Australia both at the state and federal level over the past decades that are slowly turning Australia into a police state. 
Individuals who find themselves at the mercy of the arbitrary exercise of state power have traditionally relied on the courts for protection in a democratic society. Introducing legislation that for all intentional purposes gives police the power to determine what is offensive or indecent without the matter automatically going to court removes what little protection individuals have traditionally enjoyed. When you add federal legislation that allows the state to kidnap people and hold them incognito for up to 14 days because they may inadvertently have information that may assist the police with their inquiries, with the National Crime Authority's power to secretly interrogate people and prosecute them if they refuse to answer questions, and the draconian laws that have been passed that strip workers in the construction industry of any rights to the mix, the term police state is one that readily comes to mind. Irrespective of the limitations of a judicial system that favours the wealthy over the poor, every time laws are passed that remove the judiciary, that's the umpire, from the equation, the individual, that's right, you and me, becomes hostage to the arbitrary exercise of state power, giving the police and quasi-legal bodies that are responsible to the government of the day the ability to act as judge, jury and executioner is the quickest way to creating a police state that I know. So if you think these laws mean nothing to you, when you go to your next demonstration, just think about what you say because you could be slammed with a fine of $240 for being offensive or threatening. So in many regards, these laws will now actually be used not to just deal with so-called offensive language, but they will be used to stymie political protest, just like we've seen with many other laws which have criminalised dissent in this country, which have made political activity a criminal activity. Thank you for listening to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. This program has been streaming live on 3cr.org.au. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. The podcast will be up for the next eight weeks or so. I understand they're popular. It'd be nice to know. So if you do access the podcast, give us a call. Send us an email. Don't call us. We don't want to actually talk to you. Send us an email. But if you have to call us, leave a message on 0439 395 489. This program has been streaming live on 3cr.org.au, courtesy of the Community Radio Network. Nice people based somewhere in Australia. I won't tell you where. And uh, they look after over 150 community radio stations across the nation. So that's nice to know we're part of the community radio network. You can write to us at Post Office Box 20 Parkville, Post Office Box 20 Parkville. You can email us at anarchistage at yahoo.com. And yes, I'm thinking of getting a Twitter stream. Who knows? Who knows? The trouble is I'll have to get somebody else to do the Twitters because I can't use, I can't type. Thank you once again for listening to the Anarchist World this week. Broadcast on the Community Radio Network. Listen to the Anarchist World this week on your local community station next week. This program has been streaming live on 3cr.org.au, courtesy of the Community Radio Network. That number, once again, 0439 395 489. And don't forget to organise celebrations for Marbo Day, Friday the 3rd of June, the day where the reconciliation process between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians was kick-started. Thank you once again. Listen to the Anarchist World this week, next week. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death
Jeff's construction. An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World this week. Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. 10am every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist World this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Poisoning their brainwashed minds. Oh,